in Genesis, brothers turn on one another like leaf colors in fall. Not that we would know anything about that anymore uh, down here. We don't know what foliage is like anymore. Our leaves burn on the vine now and then fall. But Jacob himself plotted against his brother and thus followed him into his own family. Now, a lot of you know the Joseph story. We've transitioned from the Jacob story into the Joseph story now for the month of October. And you know that years later from here, we're in chapter 37, but you know when you get over to chapter 50, and this will be our, our last installment of Joseph's story at the end of the month here, you know when we get to chapter 50, a comment is made, a statement, those of you who know the Joseph story, that is commentary for everything that Shannon just read to us in chapter 37. What you meant for evil, Joseph will say to his brothers, God meant for good. And it's really easy for us to read that statement as sort of a, an all's well that ends well. Ah, you know, it's, I know you were out to get me, but God had their plans, and so it's all okay. It's all, it's all water under the bridge. But it doesn't mean that. What we have here in this story, in chapter 37, is actually uh, two levels of evil. We've got primary evil and secondary evil. What does that mean? Well, it means that not all evil is equal. There are some acts that are worse than, than others. The primary evil is clearly the brother's direct actions against Joseph, indirectly actions against their father for the way he favored their youngest brother. We'll come back to the primary evil when we get to Genesis 50 in a few weeks. The secondary evil is Jacob's actions toward his sons. His sons collectively uh, and his son individually in favoring this one son over and against the others. The text says that he loved Joseph more than he loved his other sons. Remember Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, how they favored their two sons. Rebekah favored Jacob and Isaac favored Esau, and this was uh, over and against one another. That's evil. Now, we don't want to quite call it that. We, we like to reserve our word evil for the spectacular events of evil, but favoritism, the Scriptures call favoritism, showing favoritism, partiality, evil. And actually, the Scriptures have a lot to say about favoritism. It's, it's interesting when you trek this through both the Old and the New Testament, how favoritism works. It's an evil imposed. And so there are repeated exhortations throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, to not show favoritism. In, in families, the damage of this is only more explicit. Jacob carried on as his father and mother had done, openly favored Joseph and his mother, Rachel. And so here in chapter 37, Jacob dies a little when he gets the news that Joseph is allegedly dead. Now, news going back and forth is actually a key thread. When you look at narrative, particularly Old Testament narrative, you want to find the key threads that, that move through it. A little bit of a pun on the, the coat of many colors here. But you look at the threads uh, that, that, that are the through lines of the story, and one of them is that news is, is going back and, and forth. Uh, verse 2 says Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers, and then his brothers 
Of course, brought a false report, but there's no fair and balanced reporting anywhere in, in this particular story. We tend to read the heroes of Scripture heroically. As evangelicals, we, we have a, a penchant to do that, meaning we assume Joseph was telling the truth. That if Joseph brought a bad report, then, buddy, it was a bad report. But we're just as bad as Jacob in this regard and how we treat Joseph here. The guy is a biblical hero, no doubt, but the text as is indicates, due to the family dynamic, which the narrator is, is very careful to give us, Joseph gets some benefit from telling it slant. Look at the very next verse, verse 3. Now Israel, so he brought a bad report, verse 2, but now the, the text gives you this explanation. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he, and he made him this robe of many colors. You know, fabric back then was, they had ornate uh, things, but, but uh, the more color that was in something, I wore a tie to try this morning to, you know, this is my little subliminal message, you know, as you look at the tie. Uh, the message within the message, the subliminal message. Uh, if you had a coat of many colors or a garment, we say it, the text says robe or tunic, and we think bathrobe, we hear robe, and we don't know what a tunic is unless we've ever been to a toga party, and of course none of us would ever admit to going to one of those. Um, and so it was a garment. It, it was, you got to think of this sort of seamless kind of garment that, that probably went down around his knees and had sleeves and and to have a multicolored one was some doing because you're going to get fancy fabrics that are imported and it's going to take time to make that, whereas a singular color, it's really something. So when we read this in verse 3 with this detail, we should assume Joseph's bad report is itself suspect. It's likely embellished to continue to, to, to endear himself, ingratiate his self to his father, even though this grinds on, on his brothers, but he wants to put them in the worst possible light. I mean, look, d dad openly dotes on Joseph, giving him all right things. Uh, Joseph always got the next iPhone, you know, when the brothers had iPhone 6 and all theirs had a cracked screen. Uh, Joseph is the kid that gets the new car, and the brothers had the beater car, which they all had to share, and so on and so on. And then, topping it all, the text says, God gives this young man, and we, we're given his age, he's all of 17, dreams of greatness to come, that he would be a kind of savior of the world, in fact. But at 17, you don't necessarily know how to handle that with humility or grace. In Hebrew, the way that Joseph presents his dream, hear this dream that I've dreamed. He's in their face with it. You know, we live in a cultural context here in the South where good boys and girls still get wrapped in the colorful threads of our esteem of them. I got that as a good kid. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time what was happening, but little seeds of pride were, were germinating in me because I was esteemed for my comparative goodness to other kids. Joseph was a little full of himself. His brothers envied him, but he did himself no favors in the way he related to them. I mean, he even goes to see them wearing the colorful threads. 
He's too self-absorbed at this point to be appropriately self-aware. Don't visit your brothers, man, wearing the very thing that reminds them of how much they have cause to hate you. But just like his father before him, Joseph would receive great grace from God, but notice again in Joseph's life as with Jacob's, it's a grace that wounds. He'll later see prison for doing the right thing, but that prison stay will be what humbles him, grace wounding that way so that when these dreams came true, not in the Disney princess way of dreams coming true, this was more like prophecy. Joseph would rise to the greatest heights in the ancient world to save his people. But when he did, when that happens, he is no longer the conceited boy who at one time believed, well, yeah, everybody should bow to me. I mean, why not? I'm a good kid. I'm a perfectly good candidate for this. The father-son favoritism Joseph benefited from, it also cost him. The robe that, that covered him was also a burden. His brothers didn't want him around. They, they can hardly contain their contempt for him. We skipped over the, the narrative where they see him coming, but you know the story, uh, verse 19, here comes the, the dreamer. In Hebrew, it's even, it's even more emphatic, the dream master. They're insulting him. They're making sport out of him. Who masters anything at his age? And of course, their contempt meets opportunity, and they rid themselves of their self-important little brother. That's the story. Now, let's keep in mind that these stories are about why we need grace. There are morals to these stories, absolutely, like the causes and effects of favoritism on display here. Favoritism is a, is a moral of this, uh, of this story. Uh, how it damages, because favoritism is disordered love. Here is a story that is a warning to heed about loving the right things in the wrong ways. Inordinate love is disordered love. It is possible to love a child too much. We see that in Jacob's doting on Joseph. God's love is not disordered. And that's why throughout the Bible, when the subject is favoritism, partiality, Scripture says God doesn't show it nor causes it. And that emphasis, there's, there's a purpose in that where all the places where Scripture says God doesn't show favoritism. It's not just a statement of his character. It's also a statement of his uniqueness because he's the only God who's ever like that. All of the ancient gods showed favoritism, but not the one true God. And that the gods, plural, showed favoritism meant they held people's faults and flaws and sins over them. Not the one true God. And so the gospel, the reason we're given this instruction about favoritism in places in the scripture, and here's the story of it, the gospel trains us to see others not as anyone we should use, which the gods did. We shouldn't use others in their wealth. We shouldn't use others in their poverty. We should not use others in their sin. Nor should we cut anyone out of or off from God working in them. So yes, there are morals to these stories. Some are obvious, like the favoritism angle. And then some are less obvious, but nevertheless here. 
Here's a less obvious moral that we find in this story. I just mentioned we shouldn't cut anyone off from God working in them. Don't the brothers look irredeemable in this story? I mean, what they do to Joseph. And yet these brothers remain the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. God did not from this say, Reuben, Judah, the rest of you, I'm done with you. How could you do this? To my chosen one. Well, no, I mean, put it in a larger context. We've all wronged God's ultimate chosen one. We've all been the brothers to Jesus and yet been graced by him. And the Lord Jesus comes from who? Judah, in fact. Judah's the worst one here. He's the most awful of the lot. Chapter 38 will also confirm this. He's the one who says, hey, I got an idea. Let's not kill Joseph. That's letting him off too easy. How diabolical do you have to be to not only have this idea, but then see it through? Let's put him into slavery. That lasts for the rest of his life. Talk about bitterness and maliciousness. That's Judah. The Lord Jesus is going to come from that one. Why not from Joseph? See, that's the way we would write it. We would write it in a way that would affirm and compliment ourselves, but it gets written in a way that affirms and compliments the worst of the bunch as someone God can also redeem. We shouldn't cut anyone out of or off from God working in them. Less obvious moral of the story, but it's there. You know, I, I, this can take a long time to learn. I'm, I'm on Twitter. It's my only social media outlet, and I, I wish I didn't even have that. I mean, just about everything gets ruined, um, but I stay on it for the articles, truly. Uh, it's an online library for me. Although I have to watch what I favored anymore, people make judgments uh, based on, why did you favorite that? Well, I wanted to read it. Um, God, it's just a weird day. Um, but anyway, well, where, where was I? Uh, I uh, occasionally find a jewel on there. Like the other day, I was looking at my Twitter feed and a young pastor had had some troubles in his church and he uh, tweeted uh, five takeaways that he felt he had gotten from uh, his difficult church experience. And, um, he, and, and among the takeaways was he knows he didn't deserve what was dished out on him and that God was not finished with him. These were things that he was saying. And a wise older pastor responded, and the younger pastor was really glad this wise older pastor responded and, and said so. The wise older pastor responded, yes, and God isn't finished with the haters either. I needed that. See, that's a less obvious moral drawn from this story. We see the more obvious one, the, the obvious causes and effects of favoritism, which fit into a larger biblical framework of why this is not God's practice, nor should it be ours. Look at the damage it does. You don't need a sermon on that. What we need typically is, is though some of us probably are doing favoritism, and, and so my application to you is stop it, <laughs> okay? Just stop it. Oh if, oh, if it was just that simple. But God wasn't finished with the haters either. And, and see, we've got to see that also because like Jacob, we want to overly favor Joseph. We do. We want to read the narrative that way, where he always comes out smelling great. God is doing more 
with Joseph than he knows in the troubles that he's going through and will continue to go through for years. But God's also doing more with and in the brothers in their seemingly getting away with being the haters, but they don't really get away with it. But it's easy to miss when we take up our hero's offense. Now, using this uh, colorful cloak for, for reference, this garment, these fancy threads that Joseph wore, I want to use this as a, a reference to play off of and, and just pick out a couple of threads in this narrative. Two things that we find sewn into this story, I, I want to pull out each one as it were because um, I, I think in looking at this story and our need for grace, here's a couple of threads that we pull out. One narrative thread to pull out from here, first of two, is the center will not hold, the center of your life, it will not hold when we set someone other than Jesus there. Now, that's something you expect me to say, that's pastor talk, uh, I'm supposed to be, you know, Jesus' number one fan in the church, etc., and so on. But, but I, I, I need this too, even as a pastor. In fact, in fact, a lot of times it's the pastors who need it the most because we're, we're, the, we're the closest in one sense and we're the furthest back in the other. We're reading this story this side of the cross. Jesus is the only one who will keep us from making anyone else an obsession. Whether the person we make uh, a good obsession, like, like Jacob did with Joseph, there's a lot in that that's good about a father's love for his son, uh, but, but he idolized his son. Or, or we do like Judah, and, and we, we make Joseph the, the object of our contempt and avarice, and, and I, I got to get rid of that guy. And he becomes fixated on Joseph that way. We can obsess over someone we don't like as much or more than someone we like too much, but we won't have much of a center if we do. The center being the, the firm place, the, the foundation that, that's not going to cave out from under us, but the center won't hold if, if you put someone there if you stake your life on someone other than Jesus, it's so easy to do, but it will collapse on us in some way, inevitably. Jacob lost Joseph, the center of his world. He didn't lose him for good. We know the rest of the story, but he lost him for a long time, inalterably. You know, you and I have to have a meaning in life that suffering cannot take away. You have to have a meaning in life that loss cannot take away. Not that suffering and loss cannot touch and affect us, but that suffering and loss can't take away. I I don't sit in uh, judgment of Jacob's grief as he expresses it to his kids, you know. They try to console him and he says, no, no. There's no consoling from this. I've, I've lost a son, and, and that's just it. I'm going to go down to the grave now to be with him. I don't, I don't sit in judgment of that. that, that we, we have our, our, our personalized expressions of our, our grief and lament. And yet with the blessing of God on this man, he knew he had a meaning in life that suffering couldn't take away. When this happens, he acted as if his life was over at this point of loss. Why? Because he'd put Joseph in a place Joseph couldn't, couldn't hold himself. 
I mean, Jacob's son, Joseph, would become one of the best men that's ever lived. He would save his family. Joseph is a type of Jesus in, in that he saves his people, but he grew into that, Joseph. Whereas Jesus was that all along. Joseph needed humbling. Never did Jesus need that. Put Jesus in the center of your life. Cultivate such a relationship with him that he's central. Keep him there. He's the only one who's not going away. He's the only one you cannot lose. And then a second thread to pull here from the, the narrative is that contempt is all-consuming. You can't handle it. You're not handling it now. Those of us who are, are grappling with this, it damages. We think of these brothers, they are full of contempt, they are fixated on Joseph. But look what it does to them. They experience this jealousy, and we all experience jealousy at points in times. I mean, I was sitting in a ball stadium last night, jealous of the other team. You know, why can't we win like this team is winning? And they're beating the mess out of us. And jealous of the offense we had seven years ago and, you know, etc. We all get jealous, but this jealousy curdled. And maybe we think, you know, I mean, you think this, I think this, I could never do. And I couldn't nor could you, I, I could never do what these brothers did to, to Joseph. I couldn't sell somebody into slavery. I don't think I could kill somebody, but I know I couldn't sell anybody into slavery. And, and that's good. That's good to have that, that line that you won't cross. Okay. So we wouldn't do that. But do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Do you even love your neighbor even a little bit? When we were first correcting our children when they were small, we learned when we knew they were guilty of something to say, did you maybe do it just a little bit? And they would say, uh-huh, you know. If you'd say, did you, did you write on the wall? That looks like the kind of cat you draw. No, 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 I didn't do it. And you go, what? Did you maybe do it a little bit? Uh huh, yeah, I did a little bit. Okay. Well, let's start there. Did you maybe a little bit? You say, well, now you're making me feel guilty. No, I'm not. I don't want to do that to you. But we all need to feel conviction. Because when we feel conviction, it takes us back to our Savior. It's good to feel this conviction. And we know the moral ethic of Jesus transcends self-interest. I mean, the brothers are completely self-interested. They're just as self-interested in Joseph. It's just in the opposite direction. The moral ethic of Jesus transcends self-interest because it's not just don't do this, don't do that. It's do this. It's do this for people who can't even pay you back. That transcends self-interest. I'm making a presumption here, but I think it's warranted. I think we all see our reflection in the brothers at some angle. In that putting ourselves in their shoes, none of us like to feel left out of something. None of us like to feel like we're getting the short end of the stick. None of us like to feel like we're we're made to feel small in comparison to others. 
in these brothers, the favoritism that Joseph was shown and flaunted before them, which made it really hard. I mean, it'd be one thing if Joseph was just, you know, shown some favoritism, but he was really snot-nosed about it. It stoked their anger. And the flames of that were fanned until it became an engulfing contempt. When he showed up wearing the coat, like, dude, this is over, you know. That's where the brothers went. And they acted on that contempt. Something's got to put that fire out in us. All that self-interest that we normally carry anyway, but when it gets inflamed and, and we feel that we're now on the front end of the less than symbol, it's a fire in us and it wants to be fed. And how do, how do we get free of that? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, Isaiah 53. Do you know what peace is? It's the, it's the quieting of contempt. It's removing it. It's putting out the fire that's feeding it. God's own contempt for our sin is now quieted. It's now removed because of something his only beloved son did for us. Stripped of what he was wearing. Consumed by our contempt, he was, but he rose from it in order to free us from the worst of ourselves. And that brings us to communion. The flavor of this table is peace. I know it's a little gluten-free wafer and a little swig of juice. I don't like it either. Because it's not enough. It's purposefully not supposed to be. It's both enough and not enough at the same time. It's enough in that what we do at this table revisits um, the cost that was enough. Y'all keep listening to me. We're transitioning to communion, but that's not the end of the sermon. Stop doing what you're doing. Pay attention. It's, it's amazing. You say, well, now we're going to get communion. Okay, it's, it's time for that. Listen, I was encouraged to read something this week, and this may not feel encouraging, or you might think, well, I don't know how that would be encouraging to a pastor, but the, the encouragement was an article that said that even if the sermon bombs, communion never does. Even if the preacher never shares the gospel, communion does. And I was encouraged by that. I hope not because I'm bombing as a preacher, but because I need the gospel that communion preaches. And the little wafer and the little juice, it, it's, it, in some ways, it's a little bit of a tragedy that we do it that way because it is so tiny and small. But another way, it's fitting because who can contain? And if I gave you, a, if, if I was up here like John Dawson on Wednesday night throwing out bread to y'all, and coming around with a big goblet and a big pitcher, here you go, you know. Even that, it would feel generous, and it would be like, oh, yes. But it still doesn't hold a candle to what actually awaits us when the kingdom is here in full, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which won't be a little wafer and a little cup, everybody wait until Jesus sits down, and then we'll all partake. 
It will be uh, alive like you've never been alive, sensory overload, but you'll be able to contain it then because you'll be glorified. That's an awesome thing to consider. See, the point we're at now in the journey is we've met him, we're justified, and now we're in the sanctified process of living, and that can be really hard, and then we get to glorification, and that's when it all comes together. That's what you were made for. That's what redemption is about. Yes, we're self-interested and absorbed. Sanctification shows us this. Yes, we don't love our enemies or pray for those who persecute us. And in fact, we listen to a host of people through the week who justify that for us, that we shouldn't. We believe their gospel much more than we believe the gospel here. You might be full of contempt today. And you need to get free. How do you get free? You've got to have someone in the center of your life who isn't going away. You've got to have someone in the center of your life who doesn't depend on the comings and goings and the hither and yon of life. And you've got to reorient to the Lord and again find Him good and sufficient and altogether lovely. And communion is an opportunity to do that. Because communion speaks the word of peace to us. It's the flavor of peace. A little taste of what is a much larger reality than we have. That we have. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to this time uh, not as a time that adds anything to the grace you've bestowed us in Christ but a time that brings us back again to the cost, what it required, what we needed. Uh, Lord, it's such a brief moment. It's 10 minutes out of a, a week of hours and a month of days. It's such a brief time. But it's a time, Lord, where you once again Tell us about who we are and who you are. And rather than us being lost in the comparison, we're found. The only thing we contributed to our salvation, Lord, is we got lost. And we didn't even know to flag you down. We missed you all over the place before you finally opened our eyes and helped us to see we can even miss you at church, sometimes especially in these settings. Lord, help us to realize that the goal of this time is not to sort of feel a certain way about ourselves. It's, it's to come away squared again with the reality of who the Savior is and what he accomplishes is for us. We thank you for that. And we ask at this time, Lord, of worship and response to you would be one in which you receive our gratitude. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.